0: Morning everyone, great to see you, or not see you. Let me just start by saying that I do realise it's not December yet. Uh, I do have a good reason for wearing this, and it's not that it's going to be a Star Wars-themed sermon either. This morning is an RBT Sunday, and and in anticipation of the coming season, we're going to explore the Christmas message of Isaiah. So please turn in your Bible to the book of Isaiah uh, and follow along with us this morning. While you're doing that, I would also highly recommend the sermon handout that came with the church email last night. Uh, I think that would prove really helpful this morning for following along and maybe referring back to again uh, as you go to read Isaiah this month. One more thing that we've included in the email this time is an Isaiah reading plan. If you can see it there, you might have seen that in the email. Uh, As we're going to find out, Isaiah is actually a really fitting book to read over Advent which is why we chose to do it for RBT this month but we wanted to offer a little bit of extra help in breaking it down into some daily readings particularly because it's a long book and it's not always the easiest book so we've put together this suggested plan that covers 24 days and gives you three different reading speeds so the first one takes you through all 66 books during 66 chapters during Advent the next takes you through 24 uh, carefully selected highlight chapters and the third takes you through 24 even shorter key passages in Isaiah. And the idea is that you can choose whichever plan you think you can manage but it also means you can switch about. So if you get behind or you get a bit stuck you can move to one of the quicker easier plans for a bit and keep on track with everybody as we head towards December 24th and finishing on Christmas Eve together. Well Isaiah is a book with epic scope. In many ways, it encompasses the whole history of God's people. From Israel's past redemption and their formation as a people, to their present disobedience at the time of Isaiah writing, to the future promises of God's deliverance. Not just for one nation, but ultimately for all of the nations of the world. It's a book that shines a great spotlight, or maybe given the season, a a thousand Christmas lights onto God's great plan of salvation for his people. A plan that ultimately comes to fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of us, of course, are used to hearing bits of Isaiah at Christmas time, perhaps particularly Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, which we usually read at our Christmas carol service but really the entire book is like God's own hand-painted backdrop to the events that would take place in Bethlehem some 700 years later. Now, Isaiah is not a small book, 66 chapters, but it does divide quite neatly into three main sections, and each section develops one particular figure that God promises to send to usher in his long-awaited kingdom. So three sections, three mysterious figures. Firstly, in chapters 1 to 39, God promises to send a new king. Then in the next 16 chapters, he promises to send a servant. And then in the final 11 chapters, he promises to send a messenger. A promised king, a promised servant, a promised messenger. That's what, that's who the book of Isaiah is really all about. One more thing to be aware of is that in the book, these three figures are really presented as three different individuals, or at least that's how Isaiah's original readers would have understood them. Three different roles that would need to be fulfilled, presumably by three different people, in order for God's promises uh, to be fulfilled. What we now know, of course, and this really is a bit of a spoiler for the end, is that all three figures would in the end amazingly turn out to be one person. The Lord Jesus Christ, born as a baby in Bethlehem. This is what makes Isaiah such a perfect Advent book, because you can read it like you're one of the wise men going in search of this special three-in-one figure. Wherever you find yourself, even in the more difficult chapters, you can remind yourself of the big picture purpose, that on every page, God is showing the need for And promising the arrival of this promised king, a promised servant and a promised messenger. So let's begin. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are all about a promised king. A promised king woven against the backdrop of two other recurring themes as well. The themes of judgment and hope. In chapters 1 to 12, this message of judgment and hope and the promise of a king is addressed specifically to Israel. Chapter 1 begins with God himself calling attention to the wickedness of his people. Chapter 1 verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Although they've maintained some outward impression of devotion to God, at heart they have been unfaithful. They've despised and rejected the Lord, giving themselves to idolatry, injustice and immorality. They have become like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in response, God says that if they persist in their rebellion, He will bring judgment upon them by sending the nations to conquer them. Their cities will be left desolate as foreigners devour their land. But mingled in with this warning of judgment, there's also this repeated promise that there is rescue for the repentant. There is cleansing for the guilty. And in contrast to their present unfaithfulness, There's this promise that once the Lord has carried out his refining work amongst them, chapter 1, verse 26, then you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And on that day, chapter 2, verse 2, all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. It's an incredible promise of restoration, especially considering the terrible state that God's people are in. They're a train wreck through and through. But he tells them that he has a plan for them, a plan to transform them into something altogether new, a holy people who are a light and a blessing to the nations. But this, of course, is no small thing for God to accomplish with such a rebellious and sinful people and all the more so because of the perfect spotless holiness of the god who promises to do it and nowhere is there a more vivid vivid reminder of this than right at the center of chapters 1 to 12 where isaiah has a vision of the lord seated as a king upon his throne in chapter 6. in this vision of course the number one defining characteristic of god is his absolute perfect holiness. Chapter six, verse three, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the seraphim cry. The whole earth is full of his glory. And if perhaps up to this point, even Isaiah hadn't fully grasped the depths of Israel's sin, now he's left in little doubt. Seeing now with his own eyes, the awesome white hot holiness of the Lord, He's overwhelmed by the realisation of his sin and his people's sin. And he's certain that now, at any moment, in the presence of such holiness, he will surely be destroyed. But amazingly, he's not. In fact, in this profoundly mysterious moment that only really begins to make sense later in the book, a burning coal, a symbol of God's holiness, touches Isaiah's lips But rather than consuming him, he's told that his guilt has been taken away, that his sin has been atoned for. Now, the question that's left unanswered, of course, at this point is how can the very holiness of God that ought to be Isaiah's undoing actually be the means of his atonement and cleansing for sin? And it's not the only significant question posed by chapter six as well. Immediately afterwards, God commissions Isaiah to warn his people of the coming judgment. But God also tells him that they're not going to listen. And that Isaiah's message will only harden them. As a result, God promises that he will judge them, chopping his people down like a rotten tree to such an extent that they'll look like nothing more than a scorched and burnt out stump. But that smoldering stump, he says, will be like a holy seed. And so the question left dangling at the end of chapter 6 is, what or who is this hope? Who is this holy seed? Chapters 7 to 12 give us the answer. This holy seed, this hope of Israel is none other than a new king. A king the likes of which the people of God have never seen before. Born of a virgin, his name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. He will shine like a light on those who walk in darkness. And chapter nine, verse six, the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will be a new shoot from the old stump of David's family. Empowered by God's spirit, he will be the wisest, mightiest, godliest king of all, and his reign will utter, utterly transform and renew God's people forever. That is Isaiah's great message of hope for Israel in chapters 1 to 12. But his gracious plans and promises don't end there. Because in chapters 13 to 27, we discover that this promised king will also bring hope to the nations. Even the very nations who, as tools in God's hands would soon invade and devour Jerusalem from chapters 13 to 23 the Lord calls out the sins of these nations of Babylon and Assyria and Moab and more they are just as proud and arrogant and unjust as Israel if not more so And so God promises a day of reckoning when each and every one of these nations will be called to account for their wickedness when they will face the full fury of his judgment. Now this perhaps would have not come as much as a shock to Isaiah's readers. One day God's going to judge our enemies? Well of course he will, and don't they deserve it? What would have been a shock to them though, was for them to also hear that just as God had a message of judgment and hope for Israel, he also has this message of judgment and hope for the nations. And the message of hope for the nations clearly centres once again around the promise of a coming king, who, now we learn, will one day reign over a whole new humanity. On that day, chapter 25, verses 6 to 9 says, On that day the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. It's an amazing picture of the promised king whose coming is repeatedly foreshadowed throughout these 39 opening chapters. But of course, for Isaiah and his contemporaries, this king hasn't yet. Come. And in his absence, the need for him only grows more desperate as time goes by. He is sorely needed. And that essentially is what chapters 28 to 39 are designed to prove beyond any shadow of a doubt. Throughout these next 12 chapters, 28 to 39, what we find is this blow by blow account of the inevitable fall of Jerusalem. And the blame for it lies squarely with God's people themselves and particularly with their leaders as they continue to doubt God's ability to protect them. Seeing the hostile nation of Assyria looming on their doorstep, rather than crying out to God, Israel's leaders try to bargain with another nation, Egypt, to gain their military protection. Isaiah warns them, of the folly of trusting in chariots and horsemen, rather than looking to the Holy One of Israel to protect them, but they won't listen. What they so desperately lack at this point is a godly king to lead them in trusting God. And then all of a sudden, a glimmer of hope appears again. A new king takes the throne, King Hezekiah. We meet him in chapter 36 and he shows real promise. In 2 Kings 18, verse 5, it says of Hezekiah, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. And as the Assyrian armies descend on the cities of Judah, King Hezekiah humbles himself before the Lord and cries out for God to save them. And miraculously, the city is saved overnight as the Lord himself strikes down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Could Hezekiah then be the king that has been promised and that they're waiting for? Sadly, no. No sooner has he experienced this great deliverance than he is hosting a, a delegation from Babylon and he's giving them a tour of all of Jerusalem's treasuries. He's clearly angling to make some kind of political alliance to gain their protection rather than simply trusting in the protection of the lord chapter 39 ends very sadly with isaiah telling hezekiah that all within his house including his own sons will one day be carried away into exile in the service of the king of babylon and it's clearer than ever to see that what god's people so desperately still need is god's promised king But as the next section of Isaiah goes on to show, they also need someone else as well. They need a promised servant. So this is chapters 40 to 55 now. One thing to notice as you move into Isaiah 40 is that everything jumps forward a big way in time. In chapter 39, Isaiah is writing about current events. But from chapter 40, he begins to deliver a prophetic message for a future Israel some 200 years down the line after they have been exiled to Babylon for 70 years and then brought back home again. And this section famously begins with a message of comfort and hope for God's returning people. Chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins the exile is at an end they are free to come home and the lord himself will be with them to care for them like a shepherd and god's great desire for his newly restored people and you see this throughout chapters 40 to 48 is that they will finally fulfill their role as his special servant serving as a witness to the nations isaiah 42 includes one of Uh, includes the very first of what we call the servant songs. And although we now rightly read that first servant song as describing Jesus, ultimately, it was first of all intended to describe the whole nation of Israel and express God's great hope for them that after the exile, they would be his servant, a light for the nations, that they would go and open the eyes of the blind by telling the nations about the Lord. But sadly, it wasn't to be. No sooner are they freed from exile than they're complaining and accusing God of neglect. Chapter 40, verse 27. They say, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. Throughout chapters 40 to 48, God responds repeatedly to their accusations by reminding them that first of all, the exile didn't happen because he neglected to protect them. It happened because they rejected and rebelled against him. And secondly, he reminds them that it was he who brought them home again, that he raised up the nation of Persia to conquer Babylon and set his people free. Now, one of the things not to miss in these eight chapters is that even as God is defending himself against their accusations, he repeatedly and tenderly assures them of his own heart for them, that he is their helper and redeemer that they have nothing to fear, that they are precious in his eyes and he loves them. Some of the most moving passages in Isaiah are included in these eight chapters as God pours out his gracious, merciful heart for his people. But sadly, by the end of chapter 48, we find that Israel is still as obstinate and hard-hearted, still as spiritually deaf and blind as before. They're not qualified or willing to be God's servant. But God's plans, of course, to reach the nations cannot be thwarted. And so in chapters 49 to 55, we're introduced to a brand new servant, a willing servant, one man, who will fulfil all of God's gracious purposes for Israel and for the world. This singular servant, will not only restore Israel's relationship with God, but he will be the light for the nations, chapter 49, verse 6. He will publish peace and bring good news of happiness, chapter 52, verse 7. He will ensure that God's salvation reaches to the very ends of the earth. It's truly a remarkable thing that one man will be able to do all that the nation of Israel could not do. But what's even more remarkable is the way that he's going to do it. This promised servant, Isaiah tells us, will accomplish this mission through suffering, by being despised and rejected, and ultimately dying for the sins of his people. So that it will be said of him, Isaiah 53 verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Wonderfully, Isaiah 53 not only announces this servant's death ahead of time, But it also speaks of his resurrection and the reconciliation that will pour forth afterwards to the nations as many are accounted righteous before God through his death. And then what follows next in Isaiah is quite staggering. While there have certainly been many expressions of forgiveness and grace and mercy before this point in the book, now in chapters 54 and 55, Those gracious announcements just explode forth in a whole new way. It's like a dam has been broken as God announces an everlasting covenant of peace between him and all those who accept what the servant has done on their behalf. It's clear that the greatest obstacle to God's purposes, his own people's rebellion and sin, has been or will be fully dealt with and removed forever by this servant sacrifice. And from that day on, God's free invitation will go forth to even the most distant and undeserving of sinners. Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 3. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. This is the glorious good news that will be proclaimed and announced on that day. And it's why, in the third and final section of Isaiah, the focus shifts just one more time from the promised servant to a promised messenger who will do the announcing on that coming day. So it's this messenger, thirdly and finally, that's at the heart of chapters 56 to 66. Now, these last 11 chapters, they have a a symmetrical design to them, something I think we're getting particularly used to finding all over the Old Testament as we do RBT. Right at the very heart of this section, in chapters 60, 61 and 62, we see this promised messenger announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. Chapter 61 verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. This messenger's arrival brings with it the long-awaited fulfilment of all of the hopes and promises that God has made across the years, the moment he comes, God's justice and mercy and blessing will truly begin to flow out to the whole world. It's no coincidence, of course, that Jesus quotes these very words before a packed synagogue in Luke chapter 4. And after reading them, Luke 4 verse 20, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, unsurprisingly. And he said to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the messenger who brings God's kingdom. He's also, Isaiah tells us, a messenger who intercedes for God's people. We see this in chapter, chapters 59 and 63 to 64 In these chapters, the messenger, first of all, laments over Israel's sins and over the world's continuing evil. And then he prays a prayer of repentance on behalf of his people, confessing their sin and asking for forgiveness, asking that God would rend the heavens and come down to save them and forgive them. Next, on either side of those chapters, there are several poems that vividly contrast the final destinies of two different groups of people. And what we find is that it's how a person responds to the message of this messenger that ultimately determines their destiny. All are sinners, but on the one hand, there are sinners who continue in idolatry and in rebellion against God. And on the other hand, there are sinners who... Hearing the message of the messenger, humbly recognize their sin and become contrite in heart and turn to the Lord for mercy. Ultimately, these chapters tell us that those who continue in idolatry will be carried away from God's dwelling place forever. But those who humble themselves and repent will not only be forgiven, but they will inherit the new Jerusalem. And live with God forever. And as if that wasn't good news enough. As this new city gets unveiled in chapter 65. It turns out it's actually a new heavens. And a new earth. A whole new creation. Where death and suffering will be no more. Finally in the outermost frames of these last 11 chapters. In chapters 56 and 66. We find that the gracious message of hope. The invitation that God's messenger brings is not just for the house of Israel, it is addressed to the nations. It's an invitation to outcasts of every tribe and language and people and nation to come and be reconciled to God and to be welcomed into his family. Isaiah 56 verse 7, thus says the Lord, my house shall be be called a house of prayer for all peoples the lord god who gathers the outcasts of israel declares i will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered it's just as jesus said in john chapter 10 verse 16 i have other sheep that are not of this fold i must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock one shepherd And that, in a nutshell, is the book of Isaiah. I said at the beginning that in many ways it encompasses the whole history of God's redemptive plan for his creation, past and present and future. But what's hopefully more clear to us now is that all of these plans ultimately come to fruition in these three promised figures. A godly king, a suffering servant and a spirit anointed messenger. Three figures who though Isaiah and his original hearers could never have conceived it, would actually turn out to be one figure, one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. At Advent through December, we remember that there was once a time of intense waiting as God's people hung on with bated breath for God's promised rescuer to come. At Christmas, we celebrate the fact that this rescuer has now come. That he came announcing a message of good news for the poor and broken hearted. That he came as a servant, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that he rose from the grave and ascended to take his place as the eternal king of all creation. Still today, his invitation stands for sinners of every nation to turn to him and be saved and welcomed into his family. And now we wait eagerly for his return, which, of course, is also what Advent is about. May reading through Isaiah together this December deepen our adoration for our King. And may it stoke the fires of our anticipation for his glorious promised return. Amen.